0: Hey, welcome here. My name is Gav, and I'm one of the pastors of City Light Church, and just so thrilled to be with everybody. Uh, this is the second week of Advent, and if Advent is new to you, that's the season that the church celebrates, traditionally the four weeks prior to Christmas, and it's a, it's a season in the calendar In when we look at the four main attributes, the four benefits that are wrapped in the coming of Jesus. And those are hope, peace, joy, and love. And so last week, uh, one of our interns, Kent, did a great job speaking to us about the hope of God. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the love of God. And so if you would, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to preach in English this morning, if that's okay with you guys It's going to go better for all of us that way. Uh, We're going a little bit out of tradition. Uh, Usually we celebrate love the fourth week, and I wish I had a great spiritual reason for why we're switching it, but it was strictly scheduling. And so this week, we're week number four. We're going to talk about the love of God this morning. And uh, once again, I want to welcome the kiddos in the room during Advent. We celebrate uh, whole family Sundays, and so all the kids are in the room. There's no City Light kids except for ages four and younger. Kids are always welcome, but on these weeks, uh, we bring all the kids into the room. And so kids, thanks for being here in here. Uh, I promise not to preach long, okay? I want to keep it short and sweet. If I get long or boring or ramble on, you have my permission to throw your crayons or fishy crackers at me. You just come right up on front if I'm losing you or rambling, okay? We're glad to have you guys in the room. Now, let me start off uh, my time with a bit of an experiment. I want to ask a question, okay? I'm going to ask the The kids first and then the parents. And so, kids, in just a second, I'm going to ask you if you're ready for Christmas. If you're ready for Christmas. And if you're ready for Christmas, kiddos, I want you to scream and cheer on the count of three, okay? So, kiddos in the room, are you ready for Christmas? One, two, three. Okay, all right. Kiddos are ready. Now, here's my experiment. Parents and adults in the room. I' want to ask you if you're ready for Christmas. And the question is not, "Are you excited for Christmas?" It's, "Are you ready for Christmas?" OK? So I'm going to ask a question, one, two, three. You cheer if you're all ready for Christmas. Uh, adults in the room, are you ready for Christmas? One, two, three. Who are you? You're ready? You just blew up my experiment. You're telling me all of your shopping is done. All the present. you're ready? You guys are ahead of my illness. Would you just be pagan and carnal for a second to prove a point that you're not ready for Christmas? Okay, well, here, here was my hypothesis, which was just proved wrong by my experiment. That's why you don't do experiments live in front of people. What I thought would be true is that, in general, kids are always ready for Christmas. Isn't that true? You could ask a kid in June, are you ready for Christmas? Yes, kids are always ready because, for kids, Christmas is largely about getting they are preparing to receive. They're in, they're always ready for Christmas. Now, in my household, the adults are not ready for Christmas. In fact, we have not even begun our Christmas shopping. So if you were to ask my wife and I, I'll leave you guys out of it, if we were ready for Christmas, we would say no, right? Because in large part, for an adult, Christmas, the season, culturally, is about giving. And so, when you ask the question, are you ready for Christmas, you're asking the question, are you prepared to give? Is your shopping done? Some of you will host Christmas, and so you'll need to clean your house and cook. Apparently, you've done that already, huh? 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 You're really ready? Is your house clean? Invite me over this afternoon. We'll see. Right? For a lot of us, uh, it, it's about giving. And so I, I want to ask the question, um, you know, which is it? Is, is, is Christmas about giving, or is it about Getting. And, I, and I want to say, I think the kids and most of you are on to something, right? Uh, the Advent season, the, the question behind, are you ready for Christmas, really is a question, are you prepared to receive? Because that's what Advent is. We're anticipating the coming of Jesus and the benefits that he brings to his people. And so the question behind the question is, really, are you prepared to receive? I think the kids are on to something, but I, I think also the adults are onto to something, or at least my wife and I. Um, I think there is something about Christmas um, that has to do with giving. In fact, as we as we talked this morning about receiving God's love, what we're going to see is that in Scripture, getting God's love and giving God's love are so closely wound that they're, that they're really almost one action, that these two really can't be observed separately. And so this morning as we talk about receiving God's love and giving God's love, We see that they're really wrapped up one in the same, which I think the Christmas season helps us celebrate as we do the tradition of gift giving. Helps us appreciate and celebrate something of God's generosity to us and something about God's love and generosity through us. And so as we talk about God's love, giving and receiving God's love this morning, the reason I took us to 1 John chapter 4 is this. John, of all the Bible authors, is the one who is, I would say, the most enamored with the idea of God's love. Um, John, the disciple John, um, he wrote uh, the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, he uses the word love in various forms and permutations some 57 times. Uh, In the book that we're looking at this morning, 1 John, he uses the word love in its various forms 53 times. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. And in just those six verses, he mentions love some 13 different times. You know what's interesting about this guy, John? the Apostle John. He was the youngest of all the disciples when he walked with Jesus on the earth, but he was the oldest of all the disciples when he died. He was the only one that didn't die a martyr's death, technically, though he lived a martyr's life, but he actually lived to be an old man and died of old age. And, and when he wrote the book that we're going to be looking at this morning, the book of 1 John, he was actually a very old man. And what you notice, because you get to see his writing throughout the years, you notice that as John ages, his message becomes more and more simple. In fact, in the book of 1 John, you see these reoccurring simple themes that show up over and over again. And one of the most very clear messages from the Apostle John in his old age is that Christians are to receive God's love, and they are to give God's love. Very simple. Very simple. In City Light, this message of God's love, receiving and giving God's love, is very important to us. Because how did Jesus say that the world would know that we are his disciples? By our love for one another. The most distinguishing mark for a Christian should be our love for one another. Now let me do another experiment. Raise your hand if you think you have perfected loving people around you. Seeing as there are no hands, we have some work to do this morning. Right? In fact, in two weeks, many of us will be around a, a Christmas dinner table. Around people that we might find particularly difficult to love. Maybe your goal this year is just not to choke out a family member before the pie is served. (laughs) We have some work to do. And in all seriousness, City Light, if we as a church are going to have a tangible and lasting gospel witness in our city and in our region and to the ends of the earth, City Light, we need to be a church who is good at loving. And so we're going to take a look at these verses this morning. We've got six verses. I'm going to break it up into three different chunks, Uh, not because that's what you're supposed to do in a sermon, but because I believe these are the three main emphases that John is driving home for us this morning, and I'm going to sum them up as the who and the do and the cost of love. Yes, my third point doesn't really flow with the first two, but that was the best I could do this week. Give me some grace. Show me some love. The who, the do, and the cost of love. Point number one, I want to talk to you about the who. It's going to make more sense to you in just a second, the who. Uh, To get there, let's take a look at our text together this morning now in English. Look with me uh, in verse 7. John starts his section on love this way. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now I want you to jump down to verse 11. He says almost the exact same thing. He starts it the same way. In verse 11, he says this, Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now leave that verse on the screen if you would, Kathy. Let me ask you guys this. In in this section, the love author's Magna Carta text on love, wherein he commands God's people to love one another, what is the very first word he drops into this section? What's the first word? It's on the screen. First one is the one before all the others. (laughs) Beloved. Beloved. Before he tells us to do anything, he actually stops and he tells us who we are. He says, Beloved. In verse 7, he starts the command, Beloved. In verse 11, he starts the command with Beloved. Now, I want you to notice, before he tells us to do anything, he tells us who we are. John's intentional about this. I don't think he's just trying to be polite or trying to be kind. In fact, I think that's kind of awkward just to go around and call people beloved. Beloved, beloved, beloved. That's weird. No, I think John is being very, very intentional about this. He's being, being very thoughtful because he's going to tell us that we need to love each other. But before he does, does that, he's going to tell us who we are. We are beloved. And the reason I think John does that is because he knows this about the human person. That our actions, the things that we do, the way that we live our lives, find their home base. They spring forth from our identity, who we think we are. And so John is simply saying, I I think if if we're going to be a people who love others well, we need to realize how loved we are. Before we do the do, we need to understand the who that we are, in fact, Christians, God's beloved. To put it a little bit more poetically, the who comes before the do. Any Dr. Seuss fans here? A few of you? Yes, a few of you are Dr. Seuss fans. So am I. So in light of that, I've written a poem in, uh, in the, uh, what would you call that? The cadence in the rhyme of my favorite poet, Dr. Seuss. And so to illustrate my point of the who and the do, listen to this poem. It says, Nick and Sally were worked up one night. They had had a long fight about which one was right. Nick swore it was his way. Sally said he was wrong. And they yelled and they fought and they screamed all day long. I'm right, Nick commanded. You're wrong, she replied. So he took her best doll and he threw it outside. And he stomped in the mud and he smeared it all on the doll. But that is not all. Oh, no, that is not all. She grabbed his new bike and rolled it over a cliff. It rolled end over end and went thump in a ditch. Now the doll was a mess and the bike was all ruined. And Sally and Nick both said, what are we doing? We learned in Sunday school we're to love one another, but we end up hating and teasing the other. Love is a verb that we want to do, but we try and we try till our trying is through. Then just like that came the cat in the hat. I've got some good news, said the cat in the hat. I love that you want to do all the do's. The Bible does tell us to obey. That is true. But before you despair about failing the do's, there's something more important. It's gospel, good news. See, before you can start to do all the do's, you need to begin with a thing called the who. The who is the you apart from the do. It's it's what you are because God says it's true. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're a child of the king, you're a saint, you're accepted, you're an eternal being. Nick and Sally, if you want to love one another, the place that you start is the love of the Father. You're God's beloved. He's wild for you, and it's not because of the things that you do. It's because Jesus came down and paid for your sins. He stepped into your place. In his victory, you win. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you, you see. Before we've done anything, he loves you and me. Now let that sink in. Let it get in your bones. Tweet it out to your friends from your fancy iPhones. (laughs) Think about his love when you get out of bed, when you work, when you play. Get it stuck in your head. Let it shape you and mold you and form you all through till without a doubt you know that's your who and then. From your who, from the core of your being, you'll start to do all the do's and you'll find it quite freeing. I see, said Sally, me too, said Nick. And the cat said, let me sum this all up real quick. You have to do the do's, that's true, but the do's will always spring forth from the who. Identity is what gives life to behavior, so remind yourself of the love of your Savior. You're loved by the Father, paid for by His Son. Now take a deep breath and go have some fun. Let the love that you show and the do's that you do come from your who, God's love for you. <laughs> Dr. C. Our do comes from our who. If you try to do the do without the who, you're through. All right? I'll stop. I'll stop. Now I'm just, now I'm just going freestyle. I think that is John's point in saying, beloved, picture John looking you in the eyes and he wants you more than anything to love the people around you, which is so difficult, but he doesn't start with the command, he starts with the who, the identity. He says, listen to me, beloved of God, you are to love one another. If there was anyone who got this, it was John. It was John, the apostle John, the disciple John, the John that, that walked with Jesus and sat with Jesus and ate with Jesus. Um, you can pull that, that verse off the screen right now. I'm going to reference a couple other. I forgot to put them on the screen, but, but listen to this. This is how John refers to himself. And calling us beloved, he knows that he too is beloved. Listen to how John describes himself in the gospel of John. Uh, this is John chapter 13 and verse 23. John says of himself, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. John chapter 19 and verse 26, this is John writing about himself in third person. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, I love that. I think I'm going to start introducing myself as the guy Jesus loves. Who are you? Your name's Mark? That's great. I'm the guy Jesus loves. I think the reason why John wants us to know how much God loves us, the reason why he wants Christians to be known for their love, is he himself walked with Jesus. And, he, and the thing that he experienced the most from Jesus was how much he was loved by God. Christian, that's your who. It's not just John. That's not just me. That's you. God loves you. Did you know that? I know you know that. I know you've heard that. I know you've said that. God loves the whole world. But did you know he loves you? Linda, he loves you. He's wild about you. Thomas says he loves you. He loves you personally. He loves you powerfully. I want you to think about yourself for just a second. As I say this, don't think about your neighbor. Don't think about your kids. Don't think about your coworker. I want you to think about yourself. Have you ever been impacted with the fact that God loves you? Is it all too familiar now to where it only sits on top of your heart and doesn't actually penetrate inside of it? Or does it still grip you? Does it still floor you? Do you still get enamored like John that God loves you? God loves you even though He knows the worst thing about you, even the secret things. God loves you on your worst day, He loves you on your best day. God's love for you is unconditional because it's conditional on Jesus' performance, which was perfect. What that means is you can't lose it. God loves you perfectly, absolutely. He loves you powerfully. He loves you personally. He loves you. God loves you. That's our who. That's our who. City light, if we're going to love this city well, if we're going to be authentic Christians, if we're going to walk this thing out that we preach, that we study, that we belabor in our city groups, we need to understand who we are. Our who is the beloved children of God. Now on to the do. Point two, the do. Our who is the beloved, now the do. I think we need to point out that John does actually command us to do something here, right? He tells us the main command of this passage is that we love one another, And this command actually shows up twice. It shows up twice, once at the beginning of this passage and once at the end. It's like the two buns of a cheeseburger. It sandwiches together. Um, Around the meat is two buns of the command, which says we are to love one another. Let's take a look at the do. What are we supposed to do? Church, verses 7 and verse 8. It says this beloved, it's the who, here comes the do, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's the top bun. Look with me at the bottom bun, verses 11 and 12. He says again, Beloved, It's the who. Here comes the do. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John says, listen, if we've been born of God, if we know God, if God's love actually abides in us, we should actually love one another. You might be thinking, that sounds simple enough, but John didn't have to have Christmas dinner with my family. Right? if he had to eat with my in-laws he wouldn't have said that we have to love everyone well he doesn't give that exception does he isn't it true that sometimes the people that are the most difficult to love are the people that are closest to us kids wouldn't you say this true where's the kids at is it easier to be nice and kind to your friends or to your siblings if you have siblings is it easy to be nice to your brother and sister It can be hard at times. It's much easier to obey your teachers than it is your parents. It's the people that are closest to us that are often the hardest for us to love. But John says, if we know the love of God, we will love one another. This is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. Now, I know I haven't really defined love, right? We're letting it dangle out. There's this squishy idea right now, and I'm fine for that. And my third point, I'm going to give some definition to this idea of love. But let me deal with it still in its broadest form to just simply ask the question at this point in the sermon, do the people around you feel loved by you? Right? I think there's a lot of different directions we could go at this point in the sermon, um, but I don't want to overlook the most obvious or the most simple because it's right in front of us. And that's just this... Do you love people? I mean, really, do you love people? Do they know that you love them? I want you to picture yourself at home for just a second. I want you to think about the way you interact at home from the lens of your spouse, or your roommates, or your kids, or your neighbors, whomever might be around. Would they say, man, one of the most distinguishing things about that person is they love me. Would they say, wow, what they do with their time, their money, their words, uh, what they give themselves to really serves to make my life better. I feel loved and valued by that person. Think about yourself at work or at school. Kind of think about your typical day from the vantage point of a classmate or a coworker. If you were looking at yourself from the outside, would you say, man, that's a, that's a loving person. The way he or she uses his or her words, his or her actions, really serves to build me up and encourage me and to make my life a little bit better? Would the people around you say that you are a loving person? Now, church, I want us to think about our church from the outside. Uh, What is our reputation in this city as a church family collectively? Uh, I know we're a newer church, but we're not that new. We've been around for a couple of years. We're on the map. We're on a radar. Word is out about city. When people think about City Light Church, do they think, man, that church, they love Jesus and they love my city. And five years from now, what will the reputation of our church be? Will it be known for love? The, man, they love each other. They love our city. They are a really loving church. Um, I think I can say we're getting there. If I, if I can just objectively say this, I think we have lots of room to grow, okay? I don't think we're batting a 1,000 on this, but I, I think as a pastor, I have this kind of I feel like I get a cheat. I get this unique vantage point wherein I get to have all these touch points and see into some of the love that you guys have in this congregation for each other and for our city. And I have to say, um, it's just humbling because I feel like so many of you are discipling me on what it looks like to love people well. I get to see so many of you guys, the the stories I could tell, I could go on and on and on of uh, the family that hears about a single mom and pays for her bills anonymously, happens in our church. Um, The way people will see a family in need or a single mom in need and actually move them into their house rent-free, happens all the time in our church. Um, To Mama Kay, who this last Wednesday served over 200 meals to our City Light Club kids who are largely in this neighborhood and our City Light Middle School. Her own um, time, 200 meals, absolutely incredible. The way you guys welcome each other into your homes, the way you share your lives and your food and your stories and your heart and your finances with one another, it's incredible. Some of you guys rode here on the City Light van from the City Mission. Some of you guys drove in on heated leather seats from the suburbs. But despite all of our diversity, the thing that defines us in this room, I think, is your love for Jesus and your love for one another. I love that. Beautiful picture. City Light, more and more may we be known by our love, that we love one another, for we have been loved by God. Amen? The way we get to be defined by our do is we root ourselves in the who. Who are we? We are the beloved of God. We are the church that Jesus loves. We are the people that Jesus absolutely loves. Point one and two, the who and the do. Point three doesn't rhyme at all. I want to talk to you about the cost of love, okay? Let's start to give a little definition to this love. What does this biblical love look like that we're talking about? What kind of love does John want us to love each other with? Well, in the middle of this sandwich that I talked about, we get the meat, okay? The meat is verses 9 and 10. This is the tip of the arrow in John's argument, as it were. My last point is the cost of love. Verse 9 and 10 says this. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What John is saying is that biblical love is not a social love, or a sentimental love, or a sensual love, but a supernatural and a sacrificial love. Love. How was God's love made, manif- made manifest among us? He sent his son into the world that we might live through him. Uh, we know that, God's lo- that God loves us because we have Christmas. Friends, when we were dead in our sins, hopeless, unable to remedy our own situation, God did not send us a Valentine's Day card of sentiment from heaven. He didn't send down a poem. He didn't send down, just holler down, everything's going to be okay. No, he came down and he made it okay. Love costs something. Love is expensive, and love was demonstrated in the person of Jesus who came down and paid a price. That word propitiation is just a big word for sacrifice, it means a payment. What that looks like is this, there couldn't be love between us and God because we are sinful human beings and God is a holy other God, separate in every way. He is holy and perfect and we are not, we are sinful and there cannot be love between sin and God, a price had to be paid. And rather than God just watching us in our despair, he came down and he paid the price. He came to the earth, paid the price or the penalty, the propitiation for our sins, the wrath of God upon the person of Jesus on the cross, so that there could be love between us and the Father. See, love is practical. Love gets its hands dirty. Love is boots on the ground. Love is costly and city light. I think John puts us this here, not only that we might worship and love and thank Jesus for his love, but so we might also see a picture of love and how. We are to love other people What that means is that the love that we show Will be costly For us to show love True love towards those around us There will be a cost right? Think about it parents You know this is true To love your kids is there, a, is there a cost to that Oh my goodness I have three of them Do you know how expensive kids are Right? They will cost you financially They will cost you emotionally They will cost you some sleep They'll depreciate the value of your home with markers in about 30 seconds. There is a a cost to loving kids, right? Um, Those of you who are married, is there a cost to love your spouse? There's always a cost. You can't win every fight, have everything your way, and really love your spouse. You have to pay something for that love. It's costly. It'll cost you your preferences. It'll cost you your right to win arguments. It will cost you your free time. If you're going to love, there is always a cost. And how much more, church, if we are to love our enemies? Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And I think he meant it. I think he expects us to do that. How are we to love our enemies? Well, we have to pay a cost. If we're going to be Christians, we need to pay the bill for love. What that means is we're going to have to lose some battles, we're going to have to lay aside some vengeance, and to actually obey Jesus when he says to do good to those who hate you. It's costly, but without cost it is not love. This is Christian love. This is Christmas love. It's a costly love, demonstrated by Jesus and entrusted to us. I think it's time for another poem. Amen? Let's have a poem. I'm actually going to pick up the poem where I left it off earlier. Here it goes. So Sally and Nick went back to playing that day and they found themselves once again fighting away. Nick said she was wrong. Sally swore she was right. Next came the doll and the mud and the fight. As Sally went for the bike to chuck down the hill, she remembered the cat and she took a chill pill and she thought about God and his love for her and how she so often sinned and dragged his name in the dirt. And how he sent his own son to prove his love, how he gave up his most cherished relationship above. It seemed his love wasn't a response to her own, but a one-way benevolent grace had been shown. A one-sided, selfless, sacrificial kind act. God's love wasn't a barter, but a kind gift, in fact. He loved her even though she had run away from him. He loved her when she wasn't yet proper or prim. And she looked at her brother, her muddy doll in his hand, and she forgot about trashing his bike like she had planned. Instead, she told him, Nick, I may be right, but I'm not going to hold this against you all night. When I was wrong, God didn't bring hate. He stepped down for my punishment, and he took my place. So, this love, it will cost me. I'd like to win this long fight, but instead, I will pay the price for our peace here tonight. Instead of tossing your bike down into the creek, let me wash it and tune it and shine it all week. I'll do all your chores and I'll tell mom you're the best. I'll do it because I myself have been blessed. Love comes with a cost. It never comes free. And today, I'll let that cost come from me. Sally got it figured out. City Light, a costly love came to us at Christmas. Would we be a church that knows who we are? We are the beloved ones of God who paid a costly price that he might love us. And would we, as a church, be a people who practically, tangibly, daily show a costly love to one another and to our city? Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the one who paid the price. Your love was incredibly costly. We had a debt that we owed, and you had every reason to just come with your wrath, but instead, You sent a substitute. Father, you sent the Son to be the substitute, to pay the cost that between you and us there might be love. Oh, God, as a church, we need a lot of help. We need a lot of grace. God, we want to win battles. We want to fight wars. We want to be right. We want to stand our ground. Oh, Lord, would you teach us like Jesus to be quick, to be willing to lose battles for the sake of love, to model the self-sacrificial, the costly love that you have shown us um, to each other, and to our city that we might give true Christmas love. In Jesus' good name, amen.